Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word, the only reliable truth that we have, which has revealed to us the coming of your Son and his death and his resurrection. Lord, I would ask this morning that through your Spirit you would um, help us to understand, open our eyes, open our ears, Lord, and our hearts to understand and receive and respond to your truth. Only your Spirit can do that, and we would ask that he would, and just, Lord, that you would um, be speaking this morning and not me. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in John 9 this morning, so you can start turning there. But uh, as you are, just to share with you, my wife and I, not long ago, we took a trip up to the northeast, went to D.C., and then traveled around to see the fall colors. And on our trip, we went to a place called Howe's Caverns. It's a little bit west of Albany, New York. And um, highly recommend it. It was a great, a great time that we had together, unless you're claustrophobic. I mean, it's not a place you want to be. But if you're not, it's just a great place to visit. And what they do is they take you down a couple hundred feet under the earth and then give you a tour wandering around these, these caverns that are, are numerous and, and, uh, and vast. And we went down to one of the caverns. is about a half mile or so. And the tour took us down along the winding path. We ended up at an underground river. That was a slow-moving river. But then they had us get on a boat. So we get out on the boat, this river, in a cave, a couple hundred feet down, half a mile or so away from the entrance. And they get us on the boat, and this was the best part of the tour. It's when the, the tour guide said, okay, now we're going to turn out the lights. <laughs> and so every light was turned out, and there was no flashlights, no matches, no cell phones. The overhead lights were off. It was pitch black. Uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that, but it was pretty uh, eerie. You know, you're moving your hand in front of your face, and you had no idea it was there. Only because you were moving it did you know. And your eyes searching around, even for a hint of light. And it was so dark that it was, it was overwhelming. And it didn't take long for a few of those cell phones to start popping out, you know. And, you know, we want to take some pictures, you know. Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, while, before those things came out, it was really uh, impactful. And I remember thinking when I was there, is this what it is like to be completely blind? To have total darkness, you know, all the time. To be able to to hear things going on around you, but not be able to see. Um, Statistics tell us that there's probably over one million legally blind adults in the United States, uh, many of those who are in complete darkness. And, you know, that experience there in the caverns, it really gave me a great appreciation for my eyes. It gave me a great empathy for those who uh, could not use theirs. Uh, you know, Jesus was no stranger to those suffering from blindness. And in fact, he had a specific sensitivity, I think, to those who were blind. Because if you look throughout the Gospels, the most recorded miracle of healing in the Gospels was blindness. He healed more pe- blind people, at least as recorded in the Word, than any other uh, condition, any other suffering. And who can forget Bartimaeus, right? Remember that guy as Jesus is going toward Jerusalem and uh, the triumphal entry and that day on Palm Sunday. And before he does that, on the way out of Jericho, there's this man, Bartimaeus, saying, Jesus, Jesus, calling out to him, right? Everyone around him saying, hey, shut up, knock it off, leave him alone. But he kept doing it and Jesus stopped. And he turned to the man, called him forward and said, what, what do you want me to do for you? And the man says, I want to see again. And so the Lord Jesus in that moment said, your faith has made you well. He healed him. Amazing, amazing circumstance. Even though Jesus had an important appointment to get to, his triumphal entry, kind of a big deal, he took the time to heal this man who had been affected by blindness. You know, this morning we're going to look at another situation, another circumstance where Jesus came across a man born blind, and that is in John 9. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's probably one in front of you in the pew. Turn to John 9 and we'll look at his story. And we'll see this morning that uh, this particular blind man, the day he met Jesus was the day that forever changed his life. And it is my hope that as we look at his story, this is a day that will forever change yours. As you're turning to, to John 9, let me just give you a little background. Jesus is in Jerusalem. 
He's in the temple. It's about six months or so thereabouts before the crucifixion. And as was his custom, he would often go to the temple to teach. And as would often happen, as he was there teaching, uh, the Pharisees and other religious leaders who, who did not care much for Jesus would get into these dialogues or arguments with him. Well, that is what happened here. And in the midst of the, one, this dialogue that Jesus was having with them, uh, they got to a point where they wanted to take him out. They were through with him. We're going to pick it up at the end of chapter 8, just to give us a flow of context here. Chapter 8, verse 58. I'll start reading there. Jesus said to them, speaking to the, uh, the, the Jews, the Pharisees who were, wanting to, uh, to, uh, who were arguing with him, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And as he passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but it is, it is like he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. Therefore, they were saying to him, How then were your eyes open? And he answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Well, when Jesus was in the temple and had made the declaration that I am, referring specifically that he is indeed God, God eternal, uh, the folks there weren't too uh, thrilled about that. And as was uh, often the case around the temple, a lot of construction was being done. There were rocks there, and they picked them up ready to take him out. But Jesus was able to elude their grasp. And as he was uh, leaving the temple, he went through one of the temple gates, and there sitting there was a man begging. And this man happened to be blind. The text talks about him as he was a man who was begging there all the time. The use of the verb there in verse 8 is continually sitting there begging, holding his hands out, asking for help. Uh, Because in that day, that's where beggars would hang out, uh, specifically at the temple. You remember in Acts 3 when Peter uh, met the blame man and and he said, I don't have any money, I don't have any gold or silver, but one thing I do have, and he, he healed him on the spot. Well, that guy was at the temple gate as well. And here Jesus comes across a man who is sitting there uh, asking for help. And I just, I mean, just before we get into the rest of the story, just put yourself in his shoes for a minute. You're completely blind. You have no ability to see anything. You hear people coming and going. You're sitting there day after day asking for help, probably mostly ignored. And then Jesus comes along. Our compassionate Savior did not ignore needs. And as he was coming out of the gate, remember what was happening just a moment ago. They were ready to, to, to boink him with some rocks. And on his way out, he stops and he looks at this guy. And the disciples apparently noticed that because before Jesus did anything, they ask him a question, right? They say, uh, teacher, master, this guy, is he sitting here blind because of his sin or his parents? Right? They held the common belief that, you know, every, every situation, every, every circumstance, every suffering, every trial is because of sin, some specific sin that was done. And now, while ultimately all suffering and pain and death does come from the sin of Adam, that's not the case in, in every situation that that person has done something specifically wrong. There are times where there is suffering or a condition like that for another purpose. And Jesus is telling them, hey, guys, you're, you're missing the point here. The issue isn't what caused this guy to be here in this condition. You need to focus on doing good to others, not trying to assign a cause to their condition. He said, this man is not blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin, but because God's going to do a great work for God's glory and, as we'll see in a minute, for this man's good. And so after that, after Jesus responded to them, um, there's one thing, too, I don't know if you noticed in his question, he asked, did this man's parents sin or was it his own? Now, that's a little bit strange, isn't it? If this man was born blind, 
How is it that he committed some sin to bring that condition? His parents, maybe, okay, you might see that. There may be some consequence. But in this man's case, it's kind of a peculiar question. Well, I think it reveals to us there was a, an understanding, a doctrine at that time that the rabbis put forth that, in fact, a baby in the womb could sin. Uh, they had, would use the example of Esau. Esau was a man known for violence. And they said, you know, when Esau was struggling with Jacob in their mother's womb, Esau was sinning. Um, yeah, strange. They had belie- a belief that if you were pregnant and you went and worshipped that false idol, that that baby was also participating in that false worship and therefore was guilty of sin as well. Rather a strange doctrine, but that would explain why the disciples would ask such a question. But Jesus again said, guys, this, that's not the point. Focus on doing good. And then right after he tells them that, he did something very peculiar, didn't he? I mean, Jesus spits on the ground. And uh, it's enough spit to make some mud. I mean, that's kind of a strange circumstance, right? There it is, the Lord of the universe expectorating upon the ground. First service, I couldn't say it. I needed some help, but, uh, which I thought was kind of funny. Here we are in a church service, people trying to help me say expectorate during a sermon. But um, it made me think of Gaston, right, and Beauty and the Beast, you know? Uh, anyway, I'm way off course. Uh, but here Jesus is. It's in the Bible, by the way. He spits. On the ground. And he makes enough to, to put some, uh, the Bible called it clay. I mean, it's really spit mud. And he put it on the guy's eyes. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus used uh, his saliva to perform a miracle. He healed a deaf man, a deaf and mute man, back in Mark 7. He also healed another blind man in Mark 8 uh, using his saliva. But here, he actually uses this uh, dirt. Uh, kind of a strange thing. Why did he do that? Well, there's been much uh, paper and ink that's been sacrificed trying to explain this. And I'm not going to get into all the the reasons there. There there are several possibilities. Some think that Jesus created dirt in order to remind us that man came from dirt. And so Jesus was going to recreate his eyes so that he could see from dirt. Uh, Others uh, think that Jesus did it because he wanted to show he could use any types of means to bring about a healing. Um, Others felt that he was doing it because he wanted the man to respond in obedience and faith by doing something that Jesus told him to do. Um, You know, in the end, Jesus did it this way because that's how he wanted to do it. He's sovereign. He can do what he wants. But Jesus never did anything whimsically. He always had a purpose. And I think John here in this text gives us an idea. He hints at why Jesus would have him do this. Because the issue here isn't the dirt. It's what Jesus told him to do with the dirt. Right? Because what did he say to him after Jesus rubbed it on his eyes? He told him to do what? Go wash in a specific place, right? At the pool of Siloam. Now, Jesus could have said, hey, you know, wipe it off your eyes. Uh, you know, if the focus was the dirt, he could have said, hey, you know, go get some water from a bowl, find a local well. Uh, you know, he could have told him to do all these things. But he specifically says, hey, you need to go down to the pool of Siloam, which is about a half mile south of the temple, right inside the southwest corner of Jerusalem, and wash there. Again, the question is, well, why, why did he do that? The Pool of Siloam was uh, built around the time of Hezekiah when he built a, a canal com- taking the, the Gihon Spring water and bringing it inside the city because he wanted to have water supply in case they were under siege. And about eight years ago, the actual pool has been discovered. Yes, folks, the Bible is true. There was a real Pool of Siloam. And they found it. You can go to Israel and see it. You can see the actual place where the blind man stepped down and washed his eyes. But uh, why would Jesus tell him to, to go there? Again, I think John gives us a clue there in verse 7. The issue wasn't the dirt. It was where he was going to wash it off. Because John says there, go to the pool of Siloam, which translated means sent, right? John's bringing particular attention on that. And this isn't the first time in the passage that word sent is used. Go back up to verse 4. What did Jesus say about himself? That he was one sent from God. See, I think within this passage, and as we walk through it, you're going to see the whole issue here is, was Jesus really sent from God or not? Was this one, the Messiah, the Lord, the King of Kings who God sent, or somebody else? And that's what becomes the debate. And I think uh, John and Jesus here anticipating that is trying to draw attention to the fact that I am the sent one. And this miracle is going to prove it. So you need to go to the pool of sent, and you'll be convinced So again, just keep track of that as we're going through. 
In the end, Jesus is the Messiah who came not only to heal the blind, but to save the world. So this guy, right, he figures, well, what do I got to lose? I'll make my way down there. And, you know, this is kind of strange. No one's done this before, but I'll go down. And, you know, washing my face wouldn't hurt anyway. So the guy wanders down to the pool of Siloam. Can imagine a blind man wandering through the streets looking for it? He gets there. He washes his face. And what happens? What happens? He can see. Can you imagine? What must he have felt in that moment? I can see. I can see. Oh, you're kind of ugly. Wow, but I can see. Right? And what's the first thing he does? What would you do? Do you go sit there and stare at the pool and kind of, wow, this was kind of cool. No way. You'd be telling people. Well, that's what he did. I'm sure he rushed back to his neighbors and neighborhood and tell them, hey, I can see now, right? And we get in the text here, they're kind of going, wait, is this the guy, is this the beggar that we knew from back in the day? Is he, you know, one guy's saying, yeah, it's him. Another guy's going, no, it, it looks like him, but it can't be him, right? And the whole time the guys are going, I am the one, it's me. So you can kind of picture that going on. Well, the neighbors are a little bit confused. And so they decide, we, let's take him down to the Pharisees so they can let us know, uh, you know, give us some insight here and in what's happening. And we'll see why they did that in a minute. Let's pick it up in verse 13, where we're going to see now this amazing miracle turns into a courtroom drama. Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. They said, therefore, to the blind man again, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? And he said, He's a prophet. The Jews, therefore, didn't believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight till they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. Let's stop there for a minute. So we come to find out probably the reason they brought him to the Pharisees was this all took place on the Sabbath. And these folks knew that the Sabbath, there were some specific rules and regulations, and some of them had to do with healing. And so they felt like, you know, this is something for the Pharisees to, to figure out. So they brought him down there. The Pharisees met with the guy. And there were some regulations that they had added to the fourth commandment. Uh, you know, God did command us to, at that time, to uh, keep the Sabbath. As in, the intent was so that we would set a day aside to serve the Lord and serve others. But over time, um, religious leaders in Israel added many things to them. And one of the things they added was, you're not allowed to, to knead or mix anything on the Sabbath. That would be considered work. Now, when Jesus was making the clay, he was doing that. Another uh, regulation or law they had put forth was that it was illegal to heal anyone on the Sabbath. He couldn't practice medicine or anything like that unless it was, their life was in danger. So there was one specific example that, you know, if a person had a toothache, you couldn't pull the tooth out. That would be work. But you could give the guy some vinegar uh, to maybe help ease the pain a little bit. You know, so that many things like that, very specific man-made laws that they added and jesus broke those man-made regulations things that god did not intend so in their minds this jesus is a sinner he's not even following what he's supposed to follow and so they had a hard time seeing how a guy like that could heal the blind man right if if this man is a sinner how did he have the power to heal this guy and other guys were arguing well there's no way he could have been doing this he's a sabbath breaker and they got into a fight um, Pharisees not only fought with Jesus, they fought with each other. And so they realized, you know what? Something's fishy about this story. Let's bring his parents in and confirm that. Because maybe this guy, maybe he had some temporary form of blindness or something. Or maybe he's lying. Or, or we need to figure this out. Because there's no way this Jesus healed him. All right, you got the picture? So, parents, come on in here. We need to talk to you. Verse 19. And they questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Well, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And for this reason, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. 
We're getting a little more insight here, right? The parents, uh, their only thing they were willing to admit was that this guy was our son, and yes, he was born blind from birth. It's a repetitive. He was blind from birth. And they weren't willing to go any further than that. They figured that can't get us in trouble, but we're not going to mention anything about how. And you know what? They knew, right? Back in verse 11, the guy came back and said, hey, this guy named Jesus healed me. I'm fairly certain they were probably aware of that as well. But they said, we have no idea how this thing happened. Right? And they, then they threw their kid under the bus and said, hey, ask him. He's old enough. Don't ask us. Right? We don't know nothing. Well, even though they didn't reveal everything there, what they did say was enough to cause the Pharisees some problems because it did confirm, one, that this guy was indeed blind from birth. And that was a problem for them. So then they started thinking, well, if that's the case, uh, it couldn't have been Jesus that healed him. You know, something else must have happened. So that guy must be lying. All right, maybe he was blind from birth, but you know what? There's something fishy going on. So we're going to bring him back in and convince him that it wasn't Jesus who did this. All right? So the, the investigation turns into an interrogation. Let's pick it up in verse 24. So, a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to be his disciples too, do you? A little bit of sarcasm there. Well, they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, notice they didn't call him Jesus, this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. They said that there because if you look in the Old Testament scripture and in Jewish history, there was not one recorded case of a person being healed from blindness from birth. There was a case of blindness in 2 Kings 6 that God caused and then, and then uh, took away. But, but this man understood things. that This had never happened before, at least in their recorded history. So he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? And they put him out. Right? They basically bring the guy back in and say, hey, bub, listen, honor God here and tell us Jesus didn't heal you, did he? Well, he couldn't have, right? He's a Sabbath breaker. He's a sinner. There's no way this guy could have, God would have listened to him and healed you. And I think the guy is starting to get it here. He's starting to understand, you know what? These guys could care less about me. They could care less about God. All they're interested in is believing their form of what they think is true. He was starting to see into their hypocrisy. And that's why I think he kind of threw a little dig in there. Say, do you want to be his disciples? Because he saw what was going on. He understood. This guy is beginning to think about it more. And he's realizing Jesus is legit. And what has now become an interrogation, the blind man begins to see, again, just through their hypocrisy. And after they asked him for the umpteenth time, he said, you know, I've, I've already told you. And that did it, right? Then the Pharisees went off on the guy. They said, well, who are you? You know, we, we don't know who this man is, but we know he's not sent from God. And at that point, the man in verse 31, it gives the boldest statement yet. It's really neat to kind of see his progression, right? In the beginning of verse 11, when he came back to tell his neighbors, he just said, he referred to this man called Jesus. And then in verse 17, when they, the Pharisees probed him a little bit, he said, well, he, he's a prophet. And then here in verse 31, he says, he's God-fearing, he does his will. And finally, in verse 33, he comes to affirm and he said, he must be sent from God. Well, he, said, he ends that point with, uh, and at the end, at last verse in verse 33, where, where he makes an emphatic statement. And in the Greek, it's even more emphatic. But basically he's saying, look, if this man were not from God, he could never have the power to do anything, ever. There's no way he could have done this if he wasn't from God. Well, with that, he received the right foot of fellowship right out the door. 
Pharisees said, hey, dude, on the way out, don't let the door hit you, but you're done here. I don't think he cared at that point. You know, and I, I think as we're going through this story, that was the introduction, by the way. Um, who moaned over there? I heard someone moan. <laughs> but you got to ask yourself, why did John put this whole thing here? Right? I mean, we've got an amazing miracle. Jesus has healed this man who was suffering from congenital blindness. He, he had never been able to see in his entire life. An amazing thing. First time it ever happened. Why does John then add this whole dialogue and this exchange with the neighbors and, and then with the Pharisees and then bringing the parents in and then him going back to the Pharisees? And, you know, why didn't he just skip to verse 35 where Jesus comes to the man and, and uh, brings him salvation? Well, it's a good question. I'm glad that you asked. You know, John wants to focus not only on the spectacular nature of the miracle, but he doesn't want us to miss. There's another, even more critical uh, spiritual truth contained within this account that he doesn't want us to miss. And he, he reveals it by way of irony. You know, this idea of, of, you know, you expect things to go one way and all of a sudden they, they change to another. Or within a story you might have the characters uh, are going along and they don't see certain things that we as the reader might see. John did this a lot in his gospel. If you remember back in John 1, where Philip had went to Nathaniel and he said, I found the Lord, I found the Messiah. But a couple of verses earlier it said, well, Jesus found Philip. A little twist there. John 2, what's the first miracle that Jesus performed? He made alcohol at a party. That's a little strange. You would think the Son of God would come on the scene with a little more, you know, something a little different than that. Right? You know, raise someone from the dead or, you know, heal someone or this exorcism or something like that. But instead, he makes alcohol for a wedding. Again, some irony there. John 3, when he's talking with Nicodemus and he tells him, you must be born again. Nicodemus is thinking, how does that work? Right? He's thinking physical rebirth. Jesus is talking about spiritual rebirth. Or John 19 is my favorite one. When the soldiers come up, this battalion of soldiers come up to take Jesus captive. Right? And you can picture the scene, the, the marching, and they come up with the weapons. And uh, they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? Right? In the scene where you think, man, these soldiers are in control. Right? Well, when he says, when Jesus responds, I am, what happened to the soldiers? <laughs> they hit the dirt. Right? They weren't really the ones in control there. Jesus was. The man they came to take captive was really held captive by them. Again, irony that John uses. Well, he does so again here in chapter 9, where the main story is not the healing of a man born blind, though that is an amazing thing and it does point to, to some things about Jesus. The focus here, though, is on blindness of a different kind. John is drawing our attention to this fact. And look at the remaining verses in verse 35 where we'll see it. Verses 35 to the end of the chapter. This is where John has been aiming the whole time. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. See, the whole chapter has been building up to this. The man who can't see with his physical eyes ends up being the ones seeing Jesus with his spiritual eyes. The ones who could see with their physical eyes end up being the ones who can't see, who are spiritually blind. The unlearned beggar turns out to be the enlightened one. And the enlightened Pharisees turn out to be the spiritual beggars. You know, the irony here is that the real blind ones here are not the ones, the, the real blind people here are the ones that think they can see. That's what John is getting at. When the Pharisees asked there in verse 40, we're not blind too, are we? They weren't asking for information. They were making a statement. It's kind of one of those questions where you're saying, that you're making a statement, not asking a question. We, we aren't the blind ones here. It's kind of the idea. Jesus was not uh, to them necessary, but was a threat. And they, because of their self-righteousness, because of their works, because of their position and control, because of their external piety, 
their status. They didn't want Jesus around. They didn't see him as necessary. They wanted nothing to do with him. And that's what the spiritually blind person thinks. They're a person that says, I don't need Jesus. I'm fine without him. And that's what brings us to the importance of this story because I fear there are some in this room here today that are just like these Pharisees that are in the same boat as they were who were spiritually blind. That, you know what, you think, I I don't need Jesus. I'm fine without Him. Perhaps you're blinded by that same self-righteousness that the Pharisees had. They thought they could work their way into heaven. They thought they could earn God's favor. They thought by doing all these good works, God was happy with them. You might be the one that thinks, you know, I haven't done any of the big sins. I haven't murdered, committed adultery, or, you know, any really terrible immoral act, or stolen anything of significance. Yeah, I know I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I've done enough good things in my life that God's going to kind of look at those, and, and those will outweigh the bad things I've done. But the Bible says very clearly, good works apart from Christ are to God like filthy, putrid garments. Bible says clearly that we are not saved by good works, but by God's grace. Perhaps some of you are blinded by a wrong view of God. You think, you know what? I've heard the Bible says God is love and and that he's perfectly loving and he's full of love. And and so, you know what? Um, Because of that, everyone's going to make it into heaven eventually. Yeah, God might give people a spanking here and there, but you know what? Everyone's getting in because how could a good God, a loving God send people to hell? He's going to take me as I am. But the Bible says that anyone who hasn't confessed their sin to God and placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will suffer an eternity in hell. Read Revelation 20. It clearly talks about that. We're all going to be judged according to our deeds. And if we're relying on our deeds, we're in trouble. Some of you may be blinded by the things of the world. You're driven by the notion that, you know what? I want to have fun with my life. I only have 70, 80 years maybe, and I want to spend them on on pleasures. I want to spend them doing fun things. I don't want to be going to church or reading this old book that's got dust on my shelf, or I don't want to be doing all this stuff. That I mean, none of that's fun. But in our testimonies, especially in first hour, we heard testimony of our young man Danny who He tried a lot of those things. And I'll bet everyone in here has tried a lot of those things, right? In the end, they don't bring that happiness and joy we're looking for. They really don't. That's a life of Satan. Yeah, there might be some fun for a while, but don't be blinded by that. The world is offering you all these things so that it can candy coat and sugar coat your way to hell. Satan has no interest in you seeing the light. He's very happy keeping the blinders on you. And he's used a very sophisticated system in the world to attract you away from Christ, to blind you. The Bible says, what does it profit a man to gain the entire world and lose his soul? Think about that. Is that really a good trade? All the fun I want for a short period of time, with consequences, by the way. Most of them are not good for an eternity apart from God in hell. Some of you may be blinded by doubt or skepticism. How could the Bible be all true? I mean, it's an old book written by a bunch of people. Maybe you have doubts about Jesus himself. Well, if there was a Jesus, you know, yeah, the Jesus of the Bible is a good teacher, is a good man, had some good teachings. Or maybe you doubt the resurrection. How could that be true? Well, the guys who wrote about it died for it, for one. They were convinced. But, you know, I've been involved in, you know, maybe it's science or philosophy or your own experience that you're looking to as the final word. But I've been involved in science for, before I became a preacher, I was involved in science for 20 plus years. And you know what? Most of that time I realized going through that, science changes. Opinions change. We spent most of our time disputing or proving false theories that were put forth. Science is not very reliable. Philosophy is not very reliable. Our experience is not very reliable. The only reliable thing in this universe is coming from the God who created you and this universe. And it's from his book. The Bible says that it is the word of truth. In the end, you're going to have to decide what's the what's the ultimate authority. What is it that I can trust the most? Man's knowledge or opinion or the God who made you? Some of you may be blinded by even a more dangerous source of blindness, and that is false repentance. That is the the thought that, you know, 
I'll turn from most of my sins, but not all of them. You know, I've prayed the prayer. I've asked Jesus into my heart. I'm, I'm attending church fairly consistent basis. I'm doing these other things. But there are a few sins that I don't want to turn away from. There are a few things in my life that, you know, God's going to be okay with me on the most part. I remember sitting across from a man who was leaving his wife and committed many terrible things. And as we were sitting there and, and we're talking about this, and I was trying to open up the word to him and say, you can't do this. This is wrong. He, he basically stops the conversation and he looks me in the eye and he says, you know what? God's going to forgive me anyway. Wow. Wow. He didn't care. His repentance was partial. And a partial repentance is no repentance at all. The Bible says clearly in Hebrews 12 that we must be on the path of pursuing holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Thinking that we can entertain some sin in our life and God's going to be fine with that as long as we do a bunch of other stuff, that, that's the most dangerous place to be. That is the most blind person. That's where the Pharisees were at. And above all those things, we have a, a powerful being, the most powerful created being in the universe whose main primary mission is to keep people blind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving, the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light or the gospel of the glory of Christ. I mean, what, what would you think of somebody, like in that moment, Jesus was getting ready to heal that blind man, and someone comes in and, and distracts Jesus away, say, hey, you don't want to do that, don't, don't deal with him, you know, come over here. That guy shouldn't be healed. I mean, we think that guy was a pretty dastardly dude, wouldn't we? Like, come on, let Jesus heal the guy. See, Satan's like that. He's the one trying to run interference to keep you from seeing the light. He doesn't have your good in mind. His world is not the place that you want to be. He's not the one that you want to be associated with. He hates your guts. He would love to see you burn forever. But God's not that way. He sent His Son so that that wouldn't have to be the case. John, I think, has included this story so that you would be compelled to ask yourself one question. Am I like these Pharisees? Am I blind like them? Do I act as if I really don't need Jesus? Do I believe and think I'm fine without Him? You know, the Pharisees, they came up with every excuse in the book to try to reject Jesus Christ. In fact, you know, they had seen a lot of stuff. They didn't just see this blind man get healed. They'd seen Jesus perform many other miracles. They heard him preach amazing sermons. They had enough evidence to convince them that Jesus was the Son of God. But they continued to reject. They said, I don't want to believe it. Why did they do that? They didn't want to have to submit to him, right? In fact, you remember Lazarus? Not long after this, Jesus went and healed Lazarus from the dead, raised him from the dead. What did these guys want to do to Lazarus? To kill him. They made a plot to take Lazarus out. Because if Lazarus goes around, that's going to be proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And we don't want that. We're in the same boat. We've been given even more light than the Pharisees. We have the the New Testament. We have the testimony of his apostles and prophets. We have the testimony that Jesus has come and died and risen again. We've been given more light. We have 2,000 years of church history and instruction and examples from many, many people over time. We have all the evidence we need. You have all the evidence you need to show that Jesus is the one sent from God, that only through Jesus Christ can you be saved, that Jesus is the judge of all, that He is the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. There's no question about it. You've been given more light than the Pharisees have and did. The real question is, do you want to see? The blind man did, right? Jesus came up to him and found him out after he'd been booted from the temple. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Son of Man, there is a reference to Jesus as the coming king. If you look in Daniel 7, that term is there. Jesus is asking him, do you believe the Son of Man and the Messiah. And here he's asking for more than mental assent, right? He's asking for more than just agreement that he is the Son of God, that he did indeed die on the cross, that he did indeed rise again, that he is indeed the sent one from God. Jesus is saying it's more than just uh, understanding and accepting those things, right? Because the demons know all that. They've met Jesus personally. 
Many of them on this earth did. They know he's real. The demons know that he came. The demons saw him die. They helped participate in that. The demons know that he is God the Son. They have no doubt in their minds. But they're not saved, right? Knowing these things isn't what brings salvation. Look, that ultimately what Jesus is saying here by saying, do you believe? This is not a question of intellectual agreement. It is a relational commitment that he's looking for. He's saying, will you trust me? Will you be willing to, to give up your life and follow me? Stop living the way you're living and commit your life to follow me. Are you willing to turn from your sin and obey me? Will you seek to love me with all your heart? When Jesus says, do you believe? He's, he's saying, do you trust that my death on the cross is sufficient to pay for your sins and only my death is sufficient to pay for your sins? Will you trust me? Will you forsake the world and follow me? Right now, Jesus is before you with the same question. Do you believe in me? Do you trust me? You know, the blind man shows that he understood what Jesus was asking there. Because remember when he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? What did the blind man say? I believe. Who is he? Jesus said, it's the one that you're talking to, the one that you see in front of you. And then what does the blind man do? confesses that belief and that trust, and then he demonstrates it in worship. He falls right on the ground. The same ground that Jesus used to heal his eyes became the very throne room of God as he worshiped the Lord of the universe right then and there. If there's any evidence of faith, that's it. A worshiping heart. And that's what God is after. Right? He's not after a bunch of people keeping regulations, keeping the Sabbath in the manner in which man has thought it should be kept. He's interested and wants people who desire Him with all their hearts that would worship Him to do as God created them to do. God made you to glorify Him. And that's the best place to be. Brothers and sisters, isn't it? Where else are we going to find the peace, contentment, and satisfaction? Not in the world. Not in being blind. Not in being sucked into the things of the world. But only, only in trusting in Christ and worshiping Him. Jesus Christ offers forgiveness freely. Now there might be some, I think Harry mentioned it a little earlier in his testimony, that he didn't feel worthy of God's forgiveness. You know, some of you here may feel that. The things that you've done, that your sin is way too great. And all I can say to you is join the club. You know, if my sins were were shown before you or I started describing the things that I have done, you guys would leave the room. Paul was a murderer. David was a murdering adulterer. History is full of sinners. And every one of us in this room are part of that great legacy of mankind. We are all sinners before God. All of us have been born blind, haven't we? The Bible says that clearly. That all of us like sheep have gone astray. That there is no one who does good, not even one. That all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible is very clear about that. The issue isn't whether we are blind. We all are blind. The real issue is, do you want to see? Do you want your eyes open to the truth? Jesus isn't looking for people who think they have it all together. Jesus came to save sinners. Are there any sinners in here? You qualify. Jesus came looking for you. Not people who think they don't need him. Not people who think that they're fine without him. Jesus said, I came to not to call the righteous, people who think they're okay, but to call sinners to repentance. John Newton, the writer of the great hymn Amazing Grace, was such a man. He was a foul-mouthed, immoral, drunken, slave-trading sailor. He'd done many terrible things, things that he regretted that haunted him for many years. He felt that guilt of what he had done. He's the same guy who, who pens that amazing hymn, right? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found was blind now i see the apostle paul said in first timothy one that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom i'm the foremost of all great preacher charles spurgeon uh, worded it well when he said this christ died for our sins not for our virtues it's not your efficiencies but your deficiencies which entitle you to the lord jesus 
It's not your wealth, but your need. It's not what you have, but what you do not have. It's not what you can boast of, but what you mourn over that qualifies you to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus sought out the blind man and he forgave him. And he welcomes anyone, anyone who would come to him wanting to see. And that's again the question this morning. Do you want to see? Do you want to see? If not, Jesus gives a warning at the end of this passage where he talks about if you don't want to see. Remember the Pharisees, they said, we aren't blind too, are we? And Jesus' response to them is very sobering when he says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. Meaning you'd be forgiven if you recognized your blindness. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Those are haunting words. Because what he's saying there, if you think you're fine, if you think you're not a sinner, if you're blind spiritually, you aren't forgiven. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You know, Jesus doesn't wish for anyone in this room, anyone on the earth to perish. Just like he saved the blind man, he will save you. And as I said before, any, any sin can send a person to hell, right? But there's only one that will keep you from heaven. That's the sin of unbelief. That's the refusal to accept Jesus for what he says about himself. That's the refusal to, to bow the knee, to submit your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.36 says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. God's saying here that if you refuse to say that you're spiritually blind, if you refuse to say, I want to see, then there's only one thing. God's anger rests upon you, the passage says. And he made a promise to those who rejected his son. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, he says, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He's talking about there an eternity of despair, an eternity of loneliness, an eternity of suffering, an eternity apart from God. And the worst thing is you'll know. You'll know that God is real. You'll know that He made an offer you forgiveness. And you'll know that you refused it. And that will plague and haunt you for all eternity. This morning you heard a guy ranting and raving behind a pulpit with a Bible that Jesus is calling you to come to the light, to repent. And you refused. That's going to be pounding you for all eternity. That is what will be the greatest suffering is I had a chance and I rejected it. Won't you accept Christ's offer to give you sight? And don't wait. Don't say, well, I'm not going to think about this. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, do you? We just had a, a funeral here yesterday for a, a dear one who died in her 40s. Mother of three children. And praise God, she knew him. She's with him now. But what if that was you? And you were still spiritually blind. Your eyes will be opened one day, just as the blind man's were. But when you stand before the Savior, will he be your Savior or will he be your judge? You know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ rose from the dead to prove that he was the Lord of hosts to prove that he was the Messiah, the King, to show that he was not only our Savior, but our judge. And he ascended 40 days after the resurrection. But he didn't leave the earth for good. He's coming back. And John, the same Apostle John, was giving a vision of that day. He was shown what was going to happen. He was shown the day when Jesus returned. And he describes in Revelation 19 as Jesus is riding this great white horse coming down from heaven. And behind him is this throng of people, the heavenly hosts, the angels, believers who had died or were raptured before the tribulation. They're following him down to the earth behind him. In front of him are God's enemies, those who have gathered together to battle God around Jerusalem. And the question I have for you is this. On that day, will you be behind him or in front of him? Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And as I said, one day, every single one of us in this room are going to see him. And when you face him, will he be your savior or will he be your judge? You know, perhaps 
today, you might realize, and I hope, and it's been my prayer, that you realize that you are blind in sin, that you do indeed realize that you need God's forgiveness. Perhaps today you are like the blind man. He says, Lord, I want to believe. I want to trust. My encouragement to you is don't let this moment pass without confessing your sins, without placing that trust in Him, without saying to the Lord, Lord, I believe you. I trust in you. I want to see. I want to see. Give me sight. Be cleansed from your sin. Turn from it and into the arms of the only one who really cares about you. He's the only one that truly loves you. And Romans 10.9 lays it out very simply when it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Acknowledge that He is Lord. Recognize and believe and trust in the fact that God rose Him from the dead to show that He was the only one who could save us from our sins, that there is salvation in no one else. Do those things and God will welcome you with joy into his presence forever. I want to give you a moment to, to ponder and talk to God about these things in silence. Do business with the Lord right now. This, this may be the only chance that you hear something like this and be asked to really think about it. So I'm going to give you a moment just to ponder and ask the Lord. And if he's working on your heart and you realize, Lord, I am blind, or I don't understand everything this guy's saying, but I know there's something wrong in my life. I know I haven't acknowledged you. I know I haven't put my faith in you and trusted you've turned from my sin. Help me to understand and give me the desire to believe. Talk to the Lord right now. Oh Lord, we are all before you as sinners. and Lord, we're so grateful that that's who you came to save. You are a seeking Savior. You went after us. And you continue to do that. And I know there are some in this room, Lord, that you are seeking now, that you are going after. And Lord, I would pray that you would, one, keep, Lord, the evil one from continuing to blind their eyes. And Lord, through your Spirit, you would open them. Maybe even some that have been coming to this church for many years. Open their eyes. Do not let them leave in the same state as the Pharisees, being spiritually blind to you and not caring. God, may you show mercy. May you show kindness. May you help them to see the beauty of your Son and confess their sins to Him. Ask His forgiveness and be clean. Be, have the guilt of their sin removed from them. Lord, grant freedom from that bondage to sin and Satan. Lord, I pray, God, that you would move in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us salvation, that you have risen from the dead. Help us to honor you, worship you as the blind man did. We pray in your precious name. Amen.